it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me people like you wish i could just wake up and it not be true but it is oh it is living in the new world with an old soul Rich men know the rich men, Lord knows they all just wanna have total control. Wanna know what you think, wanna know what you do, and they don't think you know. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, the Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Cott, and this is Cott's Corner, episode 341 in the network. Before we bring Jim on, we have a great number of topics today. Uh, just want to say thank you to two groups of people. One is our audience, 56,000 and climbing. Uh, really appreciate your support. Helped us get on the iHeartRadio's powerful podcast network. Make sure you keep giving our shows five stars. Write some great comments for Jim after the show, because much like Major League Baseball, we do battle the analytics of a podcast world as well, and that helps us a ton. Second group of people, our first, uh, the first sponsor that we developed a partnership with, we've been very selective with it over the last year since we started. Uh, we have partnered with Blackout Coffee. Their slogan is Be Awake, Not Woke. Uh, it made me laugh, which is part of the reason why I returned their call. But uh, great family-owned coffee business, total, uh, total quality. Uh, they have the highest level of beans possible, Blackout Coffee. And as a thank you for the partnership, they're giving our listeners 20% off at checkout. On any of their coffees, as much as you want to buy, and you'll get uh, use the code David, capital D A V I D, so all caps, followed by the number twenty. You'll get twenty percent off at checkout. And with that, I want to bring on our star, Jim Cott. Jim had a had a a, uh, a great Facebook post last week. I know we're, I'll let you decide where we get started, but uh, we had some thoughts on the World Series too with the pitching. But welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, I um, I was checking out Blackout Coffee. Now I'm down here in. Uh... In southern Georgia, I got to find out maybe online where I can get some of that uh, blackout coffee because I like that slogan of "Be awake, not woke." Yeah, it's, it talks to our baseball here. Yeah, with that woke crowd, enough, so. yeah. you don't fit in well with our, our podcaster. They do, they do, com- they do uh, have dialogue with me though. They realize that I'm, I'm uh, willing to have that dialogue as long as me disagreeing with them on any of the baseball stuff or other stuff. I'll venture into life, other sports, whatever, that they don't uh, escalate. I tell them, uh, I, I joke with them that uh, maybe they need the decaf of blackout so they don't get triggered when I That's escalate right. a little bit. But yeah, I'll send looking you the- on, uh, look, Looking at the World Series, and we'll, we'll get into what I'd like to start this offseason, is, uh, is to kind of find a way that we can eliminate what they've done to dumb down quality starting pitching and game four of the world series was an absolute embarrassment to the game of baseball. And even a manager like Bruce Bochy admitted, he said, I don't like to play this way, but this is what's been handed to us. And uh, to think that we had to watch the world series game and all of a sudden it was like watching a mid-March exhibition game and people were paying tons of money to see that. And granted, you had the local interests of the Diamondbacks and the Rangers pulling for the outcome of the a favorable outcome. For for the most part, baseball fans turned it off. So we'll get into that a little bit. But I, I thought I'd, I'd like to point out and compliment, of course, Nathan Avaldi, who has, has upped his career so much by being effective in the postseason. 
Now, I know the owners say the extra layers of playoff playoffs, well, that creates revenue for them. But if you look at Nathan Avaldi, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way at all, but he has played 12 years in the big leagues. And his he's never pitched 200 innings. His career record is 79 and 73. He has pitched four complete games. But with the additional layers of postseason play, he's nine and three. He's helped two franchises win the World Series. And his career earnings now, I think, at least starting this offseason, will surpass $100 million. So that gives you an idea how these extra playoffs, if you're a player that can excel there, regardless of what your regular season record was, uh, you're going to have a lot of financial success. Yeah, he's barely over 500 for his career, 79 and 73, and well over a four ERA. I know a lot of people out there don't uh, think ERA is important. I still kind of do. Um, it, it's a it's a good indicator, but yeah, he's he started just a shade over almost 250 games in his career, and you know nobody he doesn't exude star power. But you're right in the postseason time, he's he's allowed, yeah. allowed to step up, and that's uh, that's where it counts now. You know, I cringe a little bit when I see all the graphics. And speaking of graphics, I mean it's almost like. I feel I know the producers and the and the people in the truck from Fox. I don't know if they're forced to do this, but it's like they get paid by the graphic. There were so many meaningless graphics that get thrown in there. Like like Joe Smith was seven for fifteen in his last series. This series, well, who cares? All we're interested in is what's happening on the field today. And they fill up the screen with three of the four corners with stuff that really we, we don't need. We just want to watch the game and uh, hear what the insights of the, uh, of the announcers, the experts are. So, but uh, yeah, I, I think the, uh, the networks uh, uh, found out that the, you know, the ratings are certainly, certainly down. We have to do something to, uh, to create a little more uh, excitement or better games, I guess, in the, in the World Series, but when you have two teams that have qualified without really the best records, uh, and they're deserved to be there, they they didn't make the rules. They played by them, and they excelled, and they got there, and they deserved to be there. So, I give them uh, I give them credit. But yeah, the uh, the regular season performance is uh, is kind of secondary now. If you can help uh, some teams in the in the records I talk about is. Postseason, for example, postseason home runs. Well, Mickey Mantle hit 18, but they're only in the World Series. So I'd rather see how many has player B hit in just the World Series. And then you compare that. So for me, unless somebody has now suddenly hit more than 18 home runs, Mickey Mantle still has the World Series record for home runs. Uh, Corey Seager, I think, has 30-some, doesn't he? And he? But that includes probably division series, championship series, things like that. So all these records, again, that they, they love to show those flashy graphics up there, they're, they can be pretty deceiving. Yeah. Well, they did. A, there was a graphic on social media, and I put it out there, wanting people to have some dialogue about the layers that you're speaking about, where it compared the home run output of Corey Seager to that of Reggie Jackson. And... Now, Jackson had more postseason layers than Mickey Mantle did, but far less than what we see nowadays. Because we, we had two wide receiver teams make the or 
playing in the World Series. Yeah, and Whitey Ford, I believe, had 33 consecutive scoreless innings in the World Series, going back to when, you know, baseball was the way we dreamed it would be, just the fall classic, the World Series. And so you, you really have to start throwing those records out. But again, I know the graphics people, they're called on, do they want to throw things on the screen that look like they're they're going to be uh, a lot of information and, and maybe the, the current fans that aren't really as avid as you and I are about, uh, you know, the really the integrity of the game and the way it's played, maybe that stuff is attractive to them. So if that's the case, well, that's why the networks do it. But uh, I wish I had a, I wish I had a device that I could black out the graphic and just watch the, uh, the full screen. But uh, let's, let's get into um Let's get into a little bit of what we could do to improve and develop uh, durable starting pitchers and reduce injuries. And this isn't just my mission, but the commissioner has spoken now for the last two years about what baseball is really missing is that star starting pitcher matchup. And we got a taste of it in game five when Evaldi and Zach Gallen went toe-to-toe for six innings. You can't expect them to go more uh, the way they're trained because the game isn't played that way anymore. But we got a little taste of the drama when you do have those two star starting pitchers. Yeah, that was awesome, especially after what we saw in the game before. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I was just th- I've been thinking about this for a long time because uh, – um, I really think going right down to the grassroots of Little League or Youth League baseball, we have to get back to where the coaches, and and don't refer to them as coaches that teach kids how to play baseball, just volunteers or encouragers that take a group of kids from their community and, and they devote their time, which is admirable, and just throw the ball out and say, here, Johnny, you're going to play left. You're going to play center. Here's, here's the way the game is played. I Most of what I believe is in, and want to see happen is based on my own experience. And experiences for young players today might be quite different. Uh, I had a Legion coach, and we used the word coach, uh, but he wasn't really that much of an instructor. He was an organizer, Ned Stewart's Holland, Michigan. And when we had the tryouts, he said, kid, we, we think that the right-hand pitchers will stand on the third base side of the rubber, and the lefties usually stand on the first base side because when you pivot your foot, you can use that whole shoe like a, like a sprinter does a starting block to push off. Well, that's the only lesson that I ever had in amateur baseball, and I never had a pitching coach until I was in the major league. So, Did you serve without a pitching coach in a – and all, and all these uh, extra trainers around you. No. And, uh, and, and so I think the value in just allowing yourself to enjoy the game and to let your talent, if you have a, a special talent, to kind of let that surface without being force-fed with, uh, you know, a particular way to play the game. Or you know, when you hear about 11-year-old kids getting hitting lessons and stuff uh, – Maybe that's valuable. I know it is in golf, but I think where we've seen um, the danger of, of Little League and Youth League sports in general is where the coaches are really trying to put their stamp on the game 
and maybe looking out for their best interest more than the kid's best interest. And, and another way that maybe accomplish that is if you're in a little community and say you have a hundred kids sign up to play little league baseball or youth league baseball, if it is an official little league, why throw all the names in a basket and, and draw your team. And whether you get the nine best players or the nine worst players, that's your team. You're not tasked with winning the county championship. You're tasked with helping these kids look forward to coming to the ballpark, to practice, to play. And after the game, they've had a great time and they go get an ice cream cone or whatever it is. And they don't fret about what their performance was, but they've enjoyed the day. And eventually, if they have that kind of talent, I think it'll come, it'll come to the surface. Yeah, I agree. I, I like the, uh, the idea and we've, we've tried to employ this a little bit down here. And I, it should be done every day, but we have a day, at least a day during the week where the kids run everything. And it's kind of like a sandlot day, basically, where <clears throat> they pick the teams, they govern themselves, uh, they decide how long they play, they decide who plays where. If it's baseball, the batting order is decided by them. And it's amazing. The kids know who the best players are. The sure. kids know where kids should play. And I often ask my kids, and I said, would... Would a coach out there, whoever's coaching, you know, not not to disparage people who are volunteering, but would their lineup look the same? And, and a lot of times, not really. No, uh, which I find I, I find odd. Well, I, that's understandable. I mean, when you're playing, uh, no matter what level you're at, uh, pretty quick you're going to recognize that. Hey, the guy next to me is a much better player than I am, or the guy over here on the right. I think I'm a little bit better than he is, and they. They know that better than any volunteer coach would know it, unless he's had a chance to watch uh, a ton of games. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a fun deal. I think what the what the main what the main issue with youth baseball is zeros in on pitching. Yeah, and uh, you know we've we've come to the point where uh, speed velocity is so important. Uh, that we're forcing kids uh, before they're physically mature to throw harder than they should. I think in in sandlot ball, I know little league has specific dimensions, but uh, I, I'd like to see teams in a particular little town or community uh, divided by size and not by age. So if you had uh, now, I was a little kid. You know, in my age group, we didn't have a little league, but even even in American Legion ball, I think there I was probably mm, between five, four and five, eight, about 135 pounds. Yeah, I'm right there with you. So I think uh, I, I think if we eliminated that standout little leaguer, quote, little leaguer, who's like six one and throws hard and then he's facing the little guy who's got no chance. Uh, if we could find a way to divide, uh, I think you've mentioned before that Pop Warner football does that. They do. Football does it. Um, every now and then you'll see a basketball league do it. Uh, but I think the problem there and it lies, the, which is, again, we come back to it, is the, the parents and the adults involved. They're, they, they over-legislate, similar to our Major League Baseball, where they they want things a certain way because it benefits them or their child and not so much the betterment of 
the competitiveness of, or the development or the growth of all the kids involved. So I like with I, I would like uh, with you know with baseball. You've brought this up before. It's the only sport out there, soccer, basketball, football, uh, and I don't know how lacrosse works it, but that doesn't use a smaller ball. Yeah, dealing with smaller kids. I, I don't understand that. It's a great point. I've mentioned it before. They do it in the Netherlands. I, I, I mentioned it to Steve Keener of Little League long before he was president of Little League. But the Netherlands has a tremendous youth program. In fact, in general, they have a great program in European baseball. They win a lot of the championships over there. And uh, I, I agree with you. I just don't see why when I've witnessed my grandsons playing Little League ball, I know they have no chance other than gripping the ball in the palm of their hand. Yeah and have a hard time throwing it from third to first, why we don't adjust uh, the distances and, and uh, you know, the distances from the mound to the plate and put the emphasis on fun and recreation and, and forget about development of, uh, of their skills at an early age. Uh, I, I'd like to see, you know, I know this both, both Zach Gallen and Nathan Avaldi, and Nathan's had two Tommy John surgeries. He's come back from two of them. He had one in high school, went to the same high school as Nolan Ryan. And uh, they stop and start several times. They start in the set position, so they're sideways to the plate. Yeah. Which, if you look at some of the great pitchers in the recent past, if you look at Seaver and Gibson and Koufax and Marischal, they square. They were square to the hitter. They used their arms for a little windup to create some momentum, and so the motion became one uninterrupted motion with all of their force going toward home plate. And in that way, they're using more of their body than this stress on the arm, which is why uh, you know I've like beat the drum with this. I think a great exercise is if I just rolled you a ground ball and you picked it up and did that little hop, step, and jump, and throw it to first, that is an uninterrupted motion. And it, it allows you to find your natural arm slot, and you've released the ball in a natural way. And nowadays, we, we see pitchers with like, it's one, two, three, four. They're so robotic, and I wonder if, if that adds to the fact that uh, we're seeing the increase in injuries, because uh, I, this is not my field, but I've heard from, you know, kinesiologists, uh, whoever else is in that particular field, that every time uh, you stop, the muscle contracts and then it and then again, it fires. Every, stop and start, stop and start. Whereas, you know, the old theory, uh, something in motion stays in motion. So That's once you get that arm going, if you keep it going. I think you're going to reduce uh, a lot of arm injuries. Yeah, that's simple. It's inertia. An object in motion will stay in motion. What, what helped me is when uh, when my uh, career was going downhill, and this is a, another little uh, subject I want to bring up in due time because I saw the uh, one of the stories today that the Twins are now taking a look at all of their players to see if they can predict their upside. So I've got a little story on that. But I know when I went to Chicago, Johnny Sane, uh, and I had a motion that kind of stopped and start early, uh, early in my career. And I did have one arm injury, the one that is now the Tommy John surgery, but they didn't have the surgery for it. So I allowed it to kind of heal on its own. But when I went to this quick pitch motion at age 35, where it was 
more of an uninterrupted step and throw. My arm never felt better. Uh, I pitched more innings, and I uh, I pitched deeper into games than than ever before. So I, I know that there's some value to that. On the uh, on the Twins trying to predict their upside, I I love poking holes in this these kind of theories because I was thinking about my own career, and I don't do this for boastful reasons. I give it I do it to to credit two solid baseball men that were responsible for my career continuing. So in 1973, uh, I had come off a broken wrist in 72, and I was not pitching very well. And uh, the White Sox uh, had a chance to pick me up off the waiver list, which they did for $20,000. Now, if, if I were pitching today and had the same success or lack of in 1973, they would grade me way down. They might even get rid of me. But I got together at age 35, when the twins, I'm sure, thought my career was over. And Johnny Sane taught me a new motion. Uh, Chuck Tanner, the manager with the White Sox, believed in me when I would say 90% of the managers would have said, nah, he had a nice career, that's enough. And because of the teaching of Johnny Sane and the belief of Chuck Tanner, I actually pitched almost another 10 years from 35 to age 44. So with the analytics and the science today, I would never have had that chance. So what they're what they're missing when they look at these trying to predict uh, the upside is the human element. They don't know uh, a guy like Jimmy Key, who was a great left-hand pitcher. He came back from surgery so often he was better the next time through because he he worked hard and he recovered. And the human element has to has to be considered, not just these average numbers. And science is all about average. It's not about individuals. You're, you're right. I, I think a point our audience, I'd love for them to grab onto, is as we're discussing whether it's a, a pitching motion or I, I'd prefer they use the term makeup rather than, um, you know, up, predict the upside. But it, you can't treat a human being like a dividend, like a stock. You can't divide them up into little pieces to fit your narrative. And that's, uh, I take it back to the, the motion you mentioned, the pitching motion. That stuff, uh, much, it really is prevalent in the grassroots level where these kids are starting sideways. And I, I see all sorts of crazy things trickle down here. The catching stuff, I mentioned Tanner went to a catching, uh, real great instructional situation this weekend up in the Smoky Mountains. And um, I didn't see one knee stuff there. He had, uh, you know, they, they said it, it's there. I'm going to show you a little bit, but. You know, here's the way catchers catch. You don't yeah. reach out on the ball. You, you receive it. You let it come to you. You catch deep. And I, it was really refreshing to see that. And I think the points that you're making, we're going to push this agenda um, gently if they allow us to. But if we have to be aggressive, that's fine. But I, I think your points are, are well made and, and well taken. And, um, you know, the, the whole, the whole uh, upside thing, that, that's frightening when you say that. When I hear that, yeah, and when you back to the motion, you know, if you think about it, and I did this with pitchers when I coached them, I would do the ground ball drill, and then I'd say, okay, now I'll go to the pitching rubber and make believe the catcher is the first baseman, and you just like whatever your body wants to do, uninterrupted motion, and throw it toward home plate, and it's so much freer. And I don't know where this pitching from the stretch, even in the little league, the stretch being the motion that we use when there's a man on base. Uh, I don't think 
there are numbers that say you get more power necessarily from a windup than you do from that side saddle position. But I think if you watch Bob Gibson, I mean, it is a violent, pumps his arms. His whole body is just going toward home plate. And not only does that take stress off his arm, but I got to believe if you're the hitter, I hit off a lot of great pitchers. I didn't, I didn't get punished by having to hit off Bob Gibson. But when you look at those motions, it's a little harder to pick up the ball. Uh, the last guy that did it was that I know of was Paul Bird. You might not have heard that name. Paul came out of LSU and then pitched a little for the Phillies. But he would sometimes even double pup, you know. So as Johnny Sane taught me early in my career, he said there's four ways that a pitcher can get a hitter out. You can have dynamite stuff like a Sandy Koufax and a, and a Nolan Ryan. You can have excellent control like a Greg Maddox. You can change speeds like Johan Santana, Jamie Moyer, all these guys with great change-ups. Or your fourth element is your motion. And sometimes I think the motion and the grip on the ball uh, don't get enough attention and what they could mean to helping a, a pitcher get a little bit better. Yeah. From a practical standpoint, and it's, it's almost laughable when you see these YouTube heroes on, on social media, when they're trying to do their max velocity, they're not standing sideways and just lifting, you know, doing their stuff in parts. They're actually getting a running start using momentum with their hands going above their heads and all sorts of movements. So I, I can't stand that stuff at all, but it's ironic that, the same group of people that are pushing this now, when they get the guy in the mound to throw max velocity, they have they have very segmented, regimented, rigid, um, robotic, as you put it, movements. Yeah, and I, you know, I think again, looking looking back and repeating it from what we said earlier in the show, this is going to be a long process. Uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, I met with Morgan Sword and his staff. Morgan is MLB head of baseball ops. They've interviewed several pitchers. Um, Rick Porcello mentioned, uh, recently spent time with them to ask what our, what our training regimen was, you know, in our era. In my particular case, they're, they're probably not going to pay much attention to it because if I told them some of the things that Warren Spahn uh, taught me, and first of all, you'd have to educate a lot of them as to who Warren Spahn was. Unfortunately, you know, yeah. Three-game winner, but... Uh, you know, even in those days when I when I did that, I had veterans saying, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing? Uh, what were some of those things? Well, what I first of all, when Spani uh, and I, I called him that because at first I said, Mr. Spahn, and he said, no, Spani or Warren. But, uh, you know, he immediately when we were done near the end, he said, no, I got one thing to tell you, kid, when the when the game's tied in the seventh inning, the game's just started. Uh, you have to learn to pitch uh, Mickey Mantle differently in that third at bat, that fourth at bat. And we can train pitchers to do that. This this bogus stuff about looking at the stats. Well, sure, they, if you only face, uh, you know, you're only out there for another inning after two times through the batting order, why, you know, the average against you the third time through might not look that good. But then I said to him, I said, I'd like to ask you how you conditioned your arm in spring training, because I hadn't been through that many spring trainings. And, uh, you know, I fell into the 
the, the routine that everybody used when, when Johnny Sane came along in 65, that, that really turned things around for me. But this was like 1962. And he said, well, I went out into short center field with a, with a bucket of balls, poured them on the ground, and I would pick up a ball and hop step like an infielder and one hop it. Nowadays, they have this screen behind second base when teams take batting practice. And I would one hop it in there. I'd do that every day for three or four days, same distance, and I might take a day off. Then I'd increase the distance. Um, and, and so that helped. I think it builds arm strength. I think it's a great way to uh, condition your arm. And, and that starting with that, and then along came Johnny to where we, we threw every day. And the more emphasis is what was on throwing and not running. You know, for years, the big battle cry was run the pitcher. So I used to sarcastically say, you know why they came up with that? Is because back in the, in the early 1900s or mid-1900s, they only had one field in spring training. And they had all these pitchers that came to camp. And so they're looking around, and there's like 25 of them scattered in the outfield, along with the outfielder. Well, what are we going to do with the pitchers? Well, let's take them over to the foul line and run them. Well, you know, Jesse Owens, uh, you know, uh, all these all these star sprinters, they never won any games by running. So now with Johnny, and, I, and I'm throwing a little bit every day, and I kid Tommy John about this. So he and I had hooked up in Chicago. Uh, back in the 60s, probably was 66, I'm going to say. And uh, I pitched nine innings a day before. And so I'm down in the bullpen mound on the right field line, and John called it exercising. You know, you just went through your motions, you spun the ball. If I didn't throw the day after, I would only be stiffer and sore the second day. So I wanted to throw a little every day. So TJ is running his laps around Comiskey Park. And he stopped and said, well, what are you doing? You just pitched nine innings yesterday. I said, I know. I throw a little every day. My arm feels great. Well, after he had the surgery and, and got to the point where he could begin to throw, Dr. Job said, play catch every day. And so that's what he did. So that made me a believer in a combination of what Warren Spahn taught me and what Johnny Sane taught me. And, and here's two guys that were seasoned major leaguers that had success and they went through a lot of failure as well. But we're missing that today because those of us that have experience, uh, we don't have a voice anymore because the, uh, the, the, the coaches and, and, and analytics people up top have never played, but yet they're, they're dictating how the players play. And uh, if I didn't have good baseball men like Eddie Lopat and Johnny Sane and Warren Spahn, uh, I don't know what my what would have happened in my career. Yeah, that sounds like guys that were thinking and adapting. The, the, the point you make with the 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 one hoppers uh, to you know from the out or I'm assuming from the outfield, but um, that's that's ironically one of the ways that we do our arm conditioning every day before practice, regardless of position. We do a and the part of this I stole from you. Um, we do our long toss routine. We try to condition our arms. I think the kids, if they have to throw for, you know, for, for 11 to 13 minutes, I just want them working up a sweat. And then we put half the group at shortstop and half the group in right field. And the shortstops work on, and we do it for about five to six minutes, and they work up a good sweat. Ground balls to the shortstop, 
uh, I, I will hit them short distance and then they'll, they'll field it, crow hop, throw across and learn how to follow uh, their throw. And as they're doing that, there's a position player playing first base and they learn how to catch the ball first base, come off the bag in an appropriate time. And then now they start the process. They'll roll the ball to the next shortstop and it's continuous movement, but they get that, that crow hop and follow. And then we've the other group in right field, uh, short distance, same thing. We'll work on catching that ball uh, in the proper crow hop position and throwing one hoppers to third base. And part of that, I, this, the other, that part I stole from Bob Schaefer, actually, one of our other co-hosts. He thinks throwing it on a one hop to the base gives the cutoff man an opportunity uh, to get there if they can. If it doesn't, at least it provides a great throw to third. You don't have to wait. But both those things, I stole both parts from you guys. We use that. That's 10 minutes of our following our long toss every day for the kids to get good, uh, to get that fluidity that you talk with the crow hop, but now the one hopper arm strength in the outfield. And I've seen it pay great dividends with the kids, my, my two boys specifically. Arm strength has gotten better. Accuracy's gotten better. Um, you know, the confidence level, using your body, not just your arm. And, and, and I love it. I, I think that's something that should be instituted in this, this program you're talking about with starting at the grassroots. I mean, eight-year-old kids, there's no reason why they can't do that. And, and that's where this is going to take, these are, these are my ideas. I don't have the answers. I have ideas, ideas that work for me and that I learned from guys before me that were very successful. But I think when you mentioned uh, Bob Schaefer, who I knew from his Kansas City days, you're going to get, you can get input from a lot of good baseball men that, that can be assemble all this information and then say, how can we help our young kids uh, enjoy the game, uh, reduce injuries, and, and play it in a fundamentally sound way without having coaches try to coach when they really don't have the skill set to coach. You know, I mentioned to you earlier that my friend John Stuper, who uh, was a teammate of mine in St. Louis, and uh, John pitched, uh, I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 years in the big leagues and then coached at Yale for 27 years. So uh, uh, he's involved with a, with a group called Showball, which is kind of a tryout camp type thing that you mentioned earlier on is similar to what you do. But we have to we have to convince without hurting their ego that if you want to coach young kids, uh, you're going to be more of an encourager and an organizer than jumping in and think you're going to uh, show them or, or demonstrate how they ought to play the game because uh, you're not qualified to do that. And that's not disrespectful. That's just honest. Just throw the ball out. Hey, go play. And all of a sudden, you're going to recognize who's got the talent and who doesn't. And, and that's the way it should be. If they're gifted enough, the talent will continue to take them higher. But before they get into high school, at least uh, forget about the, the highly competitive, uh, these travel balls and these turn, even the, the Cooperstown dream game, which I think they, they evidently do a great job, but with the stressful competition and the number of games that they play and the money it costs to go there. Uh, I, I'm glad I wasn't a part of that. From the youth standpoint, going to Cooperstown, it, it's a, it's a, it's a $10,000 investment just to play. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's not even counting travel and whatnot and staying and food. But um, from a, I study education a lot. I think, you know, we homeschool our kids and 
try to employ the creativity of that with what we do in sports. But one aspect of all sports I look at, we're talking baseball here. We've implemented this with basketball. We're trying to do it with baseball. But when kids are young, we talk about reducing the size of the ball, but should we not also look at reducing the number of, uh, how should we say it, decisions that have to be made? Uh, like, for instance, when we played, and you probably did the same, there it wasn't uncommon to have a pitcher, a batter, and a catcher, and you just play. And now it's just that that one-on-one battle with the, with the batter and the pitcher and uh, see who wins. And you know, as opposed to having nine players on the field with a bunch of eight-year-olds uh, right away where it's, it's just uh, extreme chaos. I see it in soccer. We see it in basketball. Um, we started a thing down here uh, reducing basketball to three-on-three. Now there's a person with the ball, and there's two players trying to help each other get open. And until they learn that, they certainly can't learn five-on-five. Um, what, what do you think? How, how, could that work in baseball? Well, I would think so, yeah. I mean, like when Sandlot ball, we – in my little hometown, we might have, uh, say, six of us that played three-on-three. Three. Well, me being the only lefty actually really helped my hitting because I had to hit the ball to left field. If I hit it to the right field side a second, I was out because we didn't have anybody over there. So, yeah, I think just those those little mini uh, – that little mini competition between uh, three players is, uh, is good stuff. They, uh, probably one thing that could benefit – a lot of pitchers and the Dodgers had them in spring training. Uh, I don't know if they still have them or not because they're not in Vero Beach anymore, but it was pitching strings. And they were these like clothesline strings that you, you had two broomsticks and then you formed the strike zone. And even guys like Sandy Koufax, they, they, the Dodgers, they use those to train you to, to throw the ball in the strike zone. But uh, you know, the games like that should be more, Okay, let's uh, out of ten pitches, let's see who can throw the most strikes. Uh, little games like that, I think that uh, uh, could be very helpful. The other, the other thing, and I mentioned this, I think a few shows ago. If I had a camp, uh, I think I would before they even started playing baseball, uh, I would have a softball game for a few innings, and then I might have touch football, and then I might have a little soccer. Uh, so that you use all parts of your body. And I didn't realize it at the time, but as a kid, uh, the biggest sport for those of us that were from, say, 10 to 14 was fast-pitch softball. So, and, and that is a great arm exercise. Denny McLean, who won 31 games in 1968, he bowled all winter before that. And bowling is a great exercise for a pitcher because – you know, your arms are swinging down below your shoulders. That's natural. When you start lifting them up over your head, that's why we have the injuries. That's not natural. So that you could you could bowl and you could pitch softball all day long. And uh, I think that's a very enjoyable game. It was big over in New Zealand. I think it still is. But uh, I, would, I would break uh, camps into things like that where they got to play a few different sports. I like that idea. I, I mentioned... And I did look up the name for you. I had it queued up, but apparently I had the text never sent. So I'm going to send it to you after today's show. But Holger Geschweidner, who is Dirk Nowitzki's trainer, oh, uh, yeah. trainer, he runs a camp, it st- still runs it, I believe, to where when the kids come, they don't even touch a basketball the first day. And it's how he trained Dirk. He trained him on body awareness, spatial awareness, 
using other muscles. They do things like dance. They row. Um, they, uh, what's the other sports they play? They, they'll play a little soccer, like you mentioned, but anything but basketball the first day. And he said he learns a lot about the kids during those times because it's things they normally don't do. So he learns how they learn. He learns where they're weak physically because um, wherever they're sore or whatever they're deficient in, he can, he can help develop a much better basketball player by doing those things. So I, I found it, I mean, when you see him at first, he looks like the mad scientist. He looks like the guy from Back to the Future. Um, he's got a flannel on. His pants are just maybe a half inch too short. He wears what looks like boots, but uh, doesn't look like any of these trainers we have over here. Uh, but he certainly turned out a good one in Dirk. Yeah, I think in, uh, along with not doing, say, basketball exercises or in our sport, baseball, you know, Joe Ryan with the Twins, who he had kind of a so-so year, I think, by Joe's standards this year. He missed a little time, but I, I still think he's going to be a, a, a really a terrific starting pitcher in the big leagues. He was a water polo player. And you can imagine coming out of the water and the explosiveness you need to, uh, you know, to propel uh, the ball. Uh, you build up a lot of upper body strength. So there is another non-baseball exercise that uh, I'm sure helped him develop his arm. No, and stamina too. That's the sport. If there's a sport that I think affects our children the most outside of the, the, the two stage play, two to three sports, uh, what I, I guess competitively you call it, but um, swimming is one and boxing is the other. And not that they don't get in the ring and hit anybody or get hit, but right. movements of those two sports for us during our downtime, uh, they're the most fun for the kids. They, you know, they don't know they're playing a sport with swimming. They don't, they don't even realize swimming's a sport. And then uh, boxing they like because they think they're a superhero. Right. But it's great footwork, great coordination. It's, it's counterintuitive because boxing, actually, the footwork is a total opposite of what you would do in regular movements. In swimming, I used a phrase with our middle two kids, um, said you can't fight the water. It's about receptivity. It's about stress and undulation. You got to kind of, pardon the fun, go with the flow. Um, yeah. But it's it's fun. Um, though, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's great to do. How would you start pitchers? I know you said different sports. But let's say you, you know, and I know they're, they're just suggestions and, and ideas and thoughts, but. You well, would- I, I'd probably, two of, my, two of my exercises for pitchers would probably be ballroom dancing and yoga. Nice. Yeah. Uh, there you got the footwork, and and if you do it, if you see some of these competitions between ballroom dancers, the cardio that they get is unbelievable. And then yoga versus weights uh, helps you develop flexibility, and so I think those exercises are are better than you know going in the weight room. Uh, I sarcastically use the expression, how strong do you have to be to throw a five and a quarter ounce ball? Uh, but you have to have flexibility. You have to develop arm speed. Um, I think players now are, the technique is improved to where they are uh, gaining strength and flexibility. If you look at a uh, probably the top pitcher, uh, if I had to send to the mound right now in game seven would be Justin Verlander. And he's a combination of very powerful, you know, 6'5", maybe 240, uh, and in great condition. And yet he he has the flexibility. Uh, So that's the key is to develop a little of each. But I wonder sometimes if uh, 
if the training with organizations have gone a little overboard with the strength and not enough of the flexibility. Uh, I, I didn't do much more than just throw a ball and still what I saw physical therapists in my 40s, and I, I still am doing it right now on my left arm, I have internal and external rotation, uh, I'd say better than most at uh, about to be 85 years old, and that's just from throwing a ball, not lifting any weights. Is that, is that on both sides, both shoulders, or just the throwing shoulder? Just throwing shoulder. My right one's pretty compromised. Unfortunately, it was my right one that I dislocated playing uh, fraternity football, but uh, my left one is, is still uh, sound and has good flexibility. Well, Vin- Vinny Perez up in New York, uh, and he, he means this affectionately. He he seems to think that your your mobility in that shoulder is is, is freakish. Yeah, he, Vinny was the guy that uh, when I was up there seeing him for uh, I think it was for some rehab on my right shoulder, and he saw me on the table. He brought in all the other physical therapists because uh, and even Doc Bowman when I went to the Cardinals. Uh, I hadn't pitched in ten days, and they picked up my contract. I said, Doc, I need a little stretch. So when I got on the table, he just he said, wow, well, I, I didn't do anything, uh, you know, to try to develop. It was, it was just a gift. But I think by not uh, over, you know, over lifting anything, just by throwing a ball, that's how I developed it. How would you, and, you know, we're trying to offer suggestions. And I know you, you've got a project with Major League Baseball. I think that's that's a great move by them to start bringing people like yourself into the fold. If they all of a sudden, you know, form a little committee and they put you as a, the, the head of the committee and they're going to start and let you guys redo grassroots baseball starting at eight years old, what, what, are, what are a couple of the first orders of business that you think you'd hit on? Well, I, I think we, we touched on them earlier. It would be uh, not playing the game at that age for uh, competitiveness or see who's going to win. It would be just for enjoyment. And then we'd have to have some some things that, uh, like I mentioned, to play uh, maybe softball or touch football, other sports, maybe maybe a little basketball, which would be great. And and sports where they could use their entire body and not spend all their time just playing baseball, throwing and hitting and this build from there. But I would say from from eight to uh, from eight to 14 or 15, uh let's just play a little of everything and make it enjoyable. And then you might find what sport you really enjoy and what sport you're good at. And then you can begin to get, uh, uh, you know, a little more specialized. I mean, I love playing high school basketball. That was my favorite, even though I dreamed in the back of my mind of always being a big league player, but you know, the baseball schedule in, uh, in Southwestern Michigan, we played probably eight or 10 games. You know, and, but basketball, you play all winter. So I really enjoyed basketball. You know, baseball practice was boring, but basketball was always exciting because it was movement. And you, you were stop and start with your legs. And so I really enjoyed that. So I think encouraging kids to play uh, a lot of those sports would be helpful. Yeah. My, my older son is similar to that. He's a f- freakish athlete, runs and jumps and He's, 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 he does well in both sports, works hard at both sports, enjoys them both. But the the excitement of something always happening in basketball, uh, I can see gets his juices flowing, uh, like like you're mentioning it did for you. Uh, with with the youth sports, 
to do that, we'd almost have to put a damper on or suspend this uh, travel ball industry because that that in itself prevents kids from, you know, actually it doesn't. We live in America. We can make choices, but it adds that extra enticement of not playing multiple sports, of not jumping from, you know, moving from, from activity to activity. And it does, it does put an emphasis on winning a tournament, even if the process isn't the right way. Yeah. That, you know, that's, well, that's going to be the biggest hurdle. I mean, when I talk to parents that have young kids or grandkids, I mean, travel ball, I can remember uh, when my, when my son was really young and, and we would play winter ball, we'd go to Nicaragua or some would go to Puerto Rico and before Castro, they went to Cuba. That was a Mecca. That was a Mecca. But everybody said, I'm going to play winter ball this year. So my son said to me one day, he said, hey, Dad, how do you play winter ball? He thought it was a different sport. (laughs) Baseball played in the winter. Well, now you you hear the terms just thrown around all the time, travel ball. And I don't know if if there's a way to stop that. Uh, But I I do think that it's uh, to have the camps like my friend John Stuper mentioned and that that you have, that's one thing. But... uh, these and I, I take it from Dr. Andrews. Uh, if you remember James Andrews, who I think learned from Dr. Job, and now there are countless surgeons that do the Tommy John surgery. But when we had a round table with uh, John Smoltz and Tom House, who was a, uh, a pitching guru, a kinesiologist, I guess you would say, that really knows mechanically, even, even top quarterbacks like Drew Brees and Tom Brady used to go to Tom House. To, uh, to practice their throwing in the off season um, that, you know, if we uh, get guys like that to, uh, to, to try to teach the proper mechanics of throwing. Do you think all kids should be, and I, I think in terms, when you get these young kids playing at eight, nine years old, you know, even 10, 11, 12, they're throwing kids out there on the mound early to pitch. And I'm using air quotes on an audio show. Uh, when they haven't been properly taught how to throw, and should should we? I mean, we we should be teaching all kids to throw from age whatever the time they pick up a ball with a smaller ball. I agree with Netherlands and you that that they should be doing that. And wh- when should we unleash the pitching? I mean, does that go back to your your thoughts on size? Like certain kids, once they reach a certain size or strength, then maybe. I I think so. I mean, I didn't really pitch in competitive games till I was, I would say fifth. Well, see, high school, I would have been, no, probably 15. But, uh, you know, it was it was commonplace to say, let's go out and play catch. So you'd be 20 feet away, 30 feet away, and you would just play catch and talk. And you didn't think about what your body was doing, your arm. It was just doing whatever it naturally, what your brain told it to do. That's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, we just enjoyed playing catch. And then you'd, you'd make up little games. Uh, you know, like we used to play uh, $3. So you'd go, three guys would be out in the outfield and they'd hit. If you caught a fly ball, it was a dollar. One hopper was 50 cents. Ground ball was 25 cents. First one to three. You'd, you'd make up little games within the game of baseball like that to, to make it entertaining. And uh, I don't know if they still have those or not, but those were uh, those were a lot of fun for us. Don't, don't, don't make that suggestion to Major League Baseball. They may turn that into like a daily fantasy thing for kids playing in the backyard. <laughs> yeah. God, um, well, I like the ideas. I, I think bringing it back, the suggestions that you, you've made today and we've talked about in the past is is really bringing it back to to simplicity. 
And I, I hope that Major League Baseball is serious about this because everything that they do with these kids nowadays has to, it's, it's almost like an explosion has to be a part of it where you got to get a shiny ring, a medal, some sort of recognition, some sort of social media plug instead of just going out and learning the, the you know, the, the fun of throwing, you know, in an altruistic way. It's fun to throw. It's fun to be good at it. It's, it's going to allow you to play longer, better, and nobody has to know about it. It doesn't have to be on social media. Um, doesn't have to get a ring for it. But uh, yeah, there's going to have to be a lot of deconstruction um, on this project. But I, I think it's a great way to start bringing guys like yourself. And I think uh, you, you've got to get, you mentioned Bob Schaefer. I know if you had Rick Porcello, uh, my friend John Stuper, I, I'd like I'd like to see a lot of input. I even thought about uh, emailing uh, Craig Breslow, who was just signed by the Red Sox as the head of baseball ops, probably the smartest guy in baseball, you know, a microbiologist, uh, whatever, he's got two degrees, and he pitched for John at uh, Yale, left-hand pitcher, and uh, he has seen a lot. So I wonder if guys like that, that went through youth baseball, what would they do today differently to try to develop more durable pitchers and to reduce injuries? Uh, I'm only giving you ideas that worked for me, you know, 75 years ago. <laughs> and so we certainly need more up-to-date opinions from guys who have been through youth baseball. So if we can just compile all this stuff and come up with kind of a model uh, maybe we can avoid having to watch game four of the World Series where it looked like a spring training game because you didn't have a, a number three or a number four starter. That's sad. Oh, I agree. And, and just because your stuff happened 75 years ago doesn't mean it's not applicable today. I, I find your stuff uh, more applicable than some of the stuff I hear in, in the most recent uh, studies that they're doing. So I, I would say don't discount it. But we have guys on this network, like you mentioned, Bob Schaefer, uh, Jim Rooney, who is the pitching coordinator for the Orioles. He had one of the longest tenured success rates for healthy arms, uh, has great ideas. We have Justin Orenduff, who's a part of our uh, our kind of our podcast uh, circle here, uh, is doing some great studies. A young, He's on the younger end of the scale where he had some arm injuries that prevented him from continuing his career. And um, you know, Ted Kubiak, who is a shortstop, but listen, still remember him well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. They, uh, wow. these guys that have a lot of ideas and, um, gosh, I got Mark Wiley, Will George. I mean, they're on there. Kevin Kernan, he, he was a college baseball player, but gosh, he's, he's seen it from a whole different perspective as a, as a writer for so many years and a reporter. So yeah, we, we, gosh, I don't want to volunteer our entire podcast network, but we've got a whole bunch of guys here that would certainly have some great input into that. That. But you know what? With all the names you mentioned in that, there is no big league coaches like that anymore. Right. They're all college coaches that uh, have the mechanical knowledge, the scientific knowledge, but they they have never had the heartbeat of what it's like to stand on a big league mound or in a big league batter's box where the stakes are higher, the pressure is greater, and and you have to find out as an individual who can perform in that crucible. And if all you've done is teach kids in college, you can do that great. I mean, I'm sure there are some really good uh, college coaches that have mechanical information through this Rapsodo and spin rate and things like that, that can be helpful. But once the game starts, uh, just sit down, don't say anything because they, they don't. I cringe when I see 
a pitcher that hasn't pitched in the big leagues go out uh, because I know what it's like to have somebody try to tell me that has never pitched and ask Rick Porcello the same thing. It kind of helped drive him out of the game uh, because all the scientists were taken over for the old baseball guys. And we, we need more of the Bob, Sh- Bob Schaefer's and, and guys like that to, to have people listen to. Yeah. Well, I think there's even more than that. There's people who have never even pitched before that forget just pitched in college or not pitched in the majors. There's people now that are providing instruction and having input that have never stepped on a mound, maybe further than JV high school. Yeah. But That's- somehow the, the general managers in, uh, in the major leagues, uh, that's the ones they're hiring him. And I heard that David Cohn applied for the Yankee pitching coach job and was he didn't get that job instead of, I think it's Matt Blake, who was a coach at uh, Army and probably very knowledgeable about the mechanics of the pitching motion. But again, uh, practical motion, you know, a, a practical uh, information, I mean, about uh, what, to, what to do on the field. Uh, we, are, we were always trained to look at the scoreboard. The scoreboard will tell you how to play uh, the score, the inning, the count. And that's all different. That's, that's just not average inning after inning. That changes with, the, uh, with what the scoreboard tells you. I think that would be my first question in, in a meeting like that the, the, with, with the commissioner's office, if they're genuinely interested. Getting to the heart of those type of hires how at the top, because everything trickles down, how at the top does a guy like David Cohn not get a sniff from an organization that he had so much success with? They know what he can do. He's in, he's a broadcaster for him too. How does somebody like that honestly look me in the eye and tell me not get a sniff? Yeah. Or if I were, if I were across the table from one, I would say, uh, well, if you were pitching today, how would you pitch Mike Trout and see what they'd say? Because I go back to when they asked Robin Roberts, how do you pitch Willie Mays? Well, tell me the score, the inning, and the count. Yeah. If I'm leading seven to nothing in the seventh inning and Willie Mays is coming up with nobody on base, I'm saying, Willie, here it is. See how far you can hit it. Because seven out of ten times you're going to pop it up. But now, if the winning run is on second and it's the eighth inning and Willie's there, I'm going to pitch him differently. And I don't know if they use that kind of logic. In de- it certainly doesn't appear because when I watch games, and again, it makes me cringe, I'll see a pitcher with a sizable lead in the ninth inning, a, a relief pitcher, say all of a sudden he comes in, his team's got a five-run lead, and the count goes to three and one, and there's nobody on base. Why in the world wouldn't you throw him a fastball right down the middle and say, see how far you can hit it. But no, they throw him a curveball, and it's ball four, and then the game goes on. And I mean, that just does not make any sense. And that's the pitching logic uh, that doesn't seem to be in vogue today. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. There's, there, there has to be some logical progression from youth all the way up to if kids get to be major leaguers, great. But at the very least, and this is important, they need to be able to pass this stuff on to the next generation, their kids, the right way. And I, I see something simple as I'll watch these tournaments that are my, my children are in, and the plate's 17 inches. There's kids yeah. that are high school kids that are number one starters that can't consistently put the ball over 17 inches. Or if they're good, I mean, splitting the plate in half is like 
they're they're awesome if they can do that. Now forget about the four quadrants, and now you talk about changing speeds and deliveries. These kids aren't equipped to do that because from the young age, the only thing that's put in their face, and you brought it up at the beginning of the show with the graphics with MLB, how fast am I throwing? How what's yep. spin? And these are things that are not. I mean, are they important to getting outs? Sure, in the right context, but not on their own. They can't stand on their own. Well, that was one of the things I used, and I mentioned it before on our podcast when I when I got the pitching coach job uh, for Pete Rose in, in 1984, and I take it from Johnny Sane and Eddie Lopat, coaches that I had before, is if a, a big league pitcher, you know, I said, how many pitches do you have? Well, I have four. Well, how many can you get over on three and two, three and one, et cetera? I'd say, let's go down to the bullpen, get warmed up. Now, just throw me 10 fastballs in the strike zone anywhere. Yeah. And even big league pitchers, uh, you'd be surprised at how many of them might even be below 50%. Wow. So until they until they develop the command of the fastball, there's really not much sense to moving, you know, moving on to something else. And that's why we have high pitch counts today where pitchers are coming out of the game early. Uh, the other thing that I didn't touch on, but this is for the professional game, really, is that I... I wish that they would take a pitcher who was a really top prospect and just leave him in one classification for the whole season and let him start every five days. They don't start every four anymore. Uh, let him work out of jams third time through the batting order for, and just let him stay there the whole year and maybe dominate. Uh, I know it helped me in, in class C ball instead of, well, let's call him up. He'll pitch a couple innings. Then we send him back down. Then we call him up. They never get a chance to develop their craft to their fullest potential unless they are able to stay there for a whole season and uh, and realize what it's like to pitch every five days and to pitch seven innings, maybe eight, and go on for five months and learn how to do that. Yeah, they certainly love complexity for complexity's sake. Yeah, uh, at that it's it's confusing. Well, I, I I've kept you over an hour. I apologize for that. I I, I love talking to you, and I, our audience loves the the insight. I did want to ask you two two questions if I could, and, and they don't have to be long answers. But uh, one I found interesting. It, it kind of knocked me off my seat. You always talk about John Stuper, who um, former skipper at Yale and former teammate of yours. But who who was his leadoff hitter at one time at Yale? Ron DeSantis. <laughs> I was in <laughs> for four years, I believe. Yeah. And then I mentioned Craig Breslow, who was now the head of baseball ops for uh, Boston. That was one of John's pitchers at, uh, at Yale. It took me a second. I went into baseball, you know, my one side of my brain trying to think, who's this DeSantis guy? Why did, why does he sound familiar? And then I'm thinking like, Oh God, I got to get back into the real world here. <laughs> Florida governor. And then uh, why don't you to brag on your, your granddaughter a little bit, just completely. Yeah, that was a terrific day yesterday. You know, my, uh, my uh, daughter passed away from a rare cancer two, two years ago at age uh, 55. And her daughter, Casey, uh, yesterday ran the New York uh, Marathon in honor and in memory of uh, my daughter, Jill. So that was, uh, that was a pretty cool experience. I got great pictures today from all the different family members that were there. Casey was, I think, a, a year and a few months when Jill ran it in 2001, uh, 2002. So uh, that, that was a big day. It was a really uh, a cool gesture by her to train all year to, to be able to run that uh, marathon in honor of her mother. So that was a great day. That's phenomenal. I, uh, 
And I thought about you yesterday. I mentioned I was in uh, Smoky Mountains with Tanner at Carson Newman uh, College, a little university out there. Uh, Will George, who's one of our co-hosts, introduced me to, to Tom Griffin about a year ago. Tom, phenomenal catching coach. He should be in somebody's minor league system running, uh, coordinating catching, if not more. But uh, great, great experience for, for Tanner two years in a row. He earned the opportunity and was more than happy to drive seven hours one way for him. But um, some things that he teaches the kids, I think, are kind of he's – he's kind of a person after our own heart here. Every kid there, when they enter the camp and they leave the camp, he shakes their hand. None of this dap stuff, the fist, you know, yeah, the hugs they have, no special dances. Shakes their hand like a man, looks them in the eye to eye, and he speaks to them. It doesn't let go of their hand until they're done talking. And uh, he had said something, uh, you know, he, he, he's been uh, really – uh, enjoys Tanner. They like each other, built a good relationship. And he asked me, he goes, you don't, you don't trust your children with many people, you know, not to, not to get a pat on the back, but why me? And I said, I think our, our kids nowadays include, and I'll just speak about my own. They need strong male figures in their lives outside of their dad. And they need to know how to handle that. And they need to learn the, the things like shaking hands, uh, eye to eye contact, please. And thank you. And he shakes every kid's hand as they leave that combine. And he, he works the dog out of them for two days. I mean, he, he's into them and I'm putting videos up on Facebook of some of the stuff and, uh, but the little things. And after the camp, he came to me and he, he was like, this guy is as good as anybody I've been around. What, what, what did you think? <laughs> and I laughed. I said, but I said, brother, you're the, you're the best thing going on out here. So if there is a committee, I'm going to recommend him to get on it because that's he, great. Uh, we need more like him. Yeah. And he, he takes the modern stuff. You know, he, he says, Hey, this, I know some of you guys are learning one knee and I don't want to disparage that. I'll show you how to get out of it. I'm going to say, Hey, be true to yourself. How you think's catch, but this is how we do it here. And uh, it's two, you know, two feet. Um, and he, he, he addresses all the modern stuff, but he's really, uh, he gets in the same thing with that reaching out and snapping balls back into the strike zone, which I can't stand. He's, uh, we've always taught Tanner, Hey, catch it deep. Let the umpire see it as long as possible. Be nice and soft on that receiving. Um, don't be moving your glove around for the pitcher. Uh, keep it still. And, uh, he, he promotes that. So anyway, I, I want to give him a shout out with his, his camp up there, small numbers, but, uh, and they walk out hand in, they walk out two by two onto the field and they walk with a different kid each time they move around stuff. Great coaches up there. Great, great instructors. Um, but you're supposed to get to know the kid next to you as you walk from, from place to place. So he teaches the kids how to communicate. No cell phones, no iPads. None of they're talking player to player, trying to learn something about their teammate there. Who, who, none of these kids know each other, by the way. So going in. But by the end, they all know each other, which is phenomenal. Two days. That's great. Yep. So he's I'm nominating him. for the, I didn't ask him if he would do it, but he's, he's getting pushed on that. If you guys put something together. So, but, uh, Jim, thanks so much. How do you want to leave the audience? I, I would love to solve this problem over the course of our podcasts. Um, be, you know, help, help our audience uh, understand. I, I hope we can, I hope we can get more feedback. I mean, even, uh, one of the thoughts I heard, I'm trying to remember exactly where it was, but it was, uh, I think it was from somebody who was back in Vermont this summer. They, they had a, an adult who had coached his sons in little league. And now his sons were, you know, college graduates and had their own careers. And, and looking back, they said, what did you learn? And what he learned was anything prior to high school should be done just for the enjoyment of it. Uh, so I think we need to get more input from 
some little league coaches that have been successful in not in winning championships, but in in uh, developing young kids that enjoyed playing baseball, enjoyed sports and professionals, college. And there might be some detractors out there that might probably a lot of them that said, hey, we love travel ball. Uh, well, if, if, you, if you love travel ball, at least cut down on the number of games that you're going to play. Uh, I think that's one of the big things. But we need a lot of input from a lot of different areas, I think, to try to solve this problem. So I'll challenge our audience then. We have 50, close to 57,000 subscribers now. We're going to challenge you guys. I thank you every time. So instead of thanking you at the end, I'm going to challenge you now. Let's get some questions thrown our way, uh, either emails. You can you can uh, direct message either Jim or myself or both or send put something live on there. I'll start putting questions up regarding that. We want feedback, positive, negative, neutral, so that we can not just uh, generate this conversation on our podcast, but also get more people engaged out there. So people that are for, against it, neutral, let's hear from you this week. And then that'll help drive our social media also. We'll help uh, to get some talking points, additional talking points next week. And then, of course, follow our buddies at Blackout Coffee. Uh, be awake, not woke, 20% off. Use David, all capitals, 20. We'll get you your 20% off. And then after you do your first purchase, you get 15% in perpetuity. That's their thank you to us for partnering. So, um but what do you think about that, Jim? We'll challenge everybody on social media and through this. Well, I like it. I'd like to get some dialogue going, both, you know, from the more current uh, people that are involved in youth baseball and uh, not just listen to what what worked for me, which may be out of style now. So let's talk about it. Yep, we'll do. And I'll tag you on that. Instead of people ask me a question every day, I will still answer that. But I'm going to pose a question every day to the audience. So it's, it's the yin and the yang. I'll answer yours if you answer mine. And I'll tag you on that, Jim. That way they can get back to both of us at the same time. Great. Sounds good. Well, great, great, uh, great podcast as usual. Congratulations to your granddaughter for finishing the marathon. I told you I was crazy enough to run an ultra. My wife said most people at midlife, they get some fancy sports car. You decided to run 100 miles multiple times. <laughs> Tells you about my sanity here. Um, but, uh, but also great, great trivia with John Stuper. I love the, the uh, you know, with Bresnik, but also with the DeSantis. That threw me out for a loop when you told me that. So great, great info as always. And uh, thank you for what you do and, and the time you spend with us every week. And audience, thanks again for your support. Keep uh, Give this one five stars. Write some comments so we can keep battling those podcast world analytics and let iHeart know they made the right choice. And with that, episode 341 in the books, Cots Corner, Real Voices of the Game. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Dave. What the world's got to Just wake up and it not be true, but it is.